Hi everyone, this is Nature Tripping. I'm Cathy. And I'm Jo. Welcome to our podcast. It's about going outside to experience the wildlife that's all around us. We're going to be chatting about where we are and what's happening. But sometimes we'll just leave the microphones recording so we can spend some time just listening. So, hello everybody, welcome to episode 23 of Nature Tripping. Um, if you've listened to any of our other podcasts, you'll know that in almost every episode we've mentioned something about climate change and the impact it's having on wildlife and habitats around the UK. For example, back in episode 21 we were in the New Forest talking about how the ancient beech trees are finding it really hard to cope with the hot dry summers and the very wet winters. In the last episode, which was on Natterjack toads, we heard from Mandy about how the dune system is being impacted by changes in climate and loss of that habitat through coastal erosion. So today we're taking a slightly different tack with our podcast um, and we're going to talk about something more human related. We're meeting with someone who's working at a local level, but also nationally and internationally on ways that we can try and reduce carbon emissions and tackle climate change. We're going to be talking specifically about sustainable homes, sustainable building methods. If we think about ecosystem resilience, by having ecosystem resilience, those ecosystems can adapt more readily to climate change. Really, this episode is all about community resilience and how communities can adapt and respond to future changes in the climate. And we're here this morning with Barbara Jones. Barbara, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yes. Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me. Uh, I'm delighted to talk about my favourite subject. So I'm... um, what am I? I'm a, I'm a builder first of all. I'm a trained carpenter and joiner. I've been working in construction more than 40 years. I love it. I would recommend it to anybody. And I got into environmental building, straw building in particular, in the mid-90s. And I learned about it in California, thinking, well, it might work over there, but it's not going to work here in our climate where it rains a lot. Honestly, two days was all it took and I was transformed. It was really a very life-changing experience. Mm. And uh, from that moment, I started changing my business over from just being a general builder and roofer to being a straw bale builder and teacher. That's what I do now. And in those days, the internet was only just starting. So we were all in touch with each other, the different people in the different countries around the world. And I still know all those people and they're still pioneering Mm. in trying to bring sustainable building into the mainstream. And it's a long, slow process, particularly here. In other countries, they've been much more successful. But here in the UK, it's been a much slower and harder process for various reasons. Mm. You set up Amazon Nails and then Straw Works. Yeah, so Amazon Nails was my roofing and building company. It was a women's company. And then I closed that and set up Straw Works, which was an architectural design company. But we also did construction and we did teaching. And then with my business partner, Eileen, we set up the School of Natural Building. And we've been teaching people how to become natural builders, how to better design using natural materials since 2014. We're here the valley from Todmorden. We're halfway up the valley side looking out over the hills. So there's some farms nearby, there's some firewood production going on and we're actually standing next to a really special building which is literally made out of straw. It's made out of straw bales. Can you describe a little bit about what this wall is? Yeah, so these are made from the small straw bales. You can hear it's it's straw it's very solid yeah and because it's, got... it's compressed yeah and it will have lime plaster on it in some places and it will have timber cladding in others it's made with ring beams of timber 
there's a ring beam underneath the straw yeah and there's a ring beam on top of the straw what's and a the ring, straw what's a ring beam a ring Sorry. beam is a continuous perimeter ring made of timber yeah it's the same shape as the building so it stabilizes the building okay. at the bottom and at the top and then you pull the two together with compression straps to compress all the straw and then you build the roof on top yeah um, wow so it must uh, be quite hard work trying to compress not really <laughs> no not really if you think of the bales that come off the field they compress about the thickness of my finger about 10 millimeters each bale so this which is six bales high has compressed about 60 millimeters right. and that's enough to and that makes it very strong yeah there's no way that's going to blow down. Oh, it will not blow right. down. You must get lots well, of jokes about <laughs> the three little pigs. The three yes. little pigs yeah. and the one that lived in a straw house. Two things about that. First <laughs> is you'd never get a pig to build your house with. <laughs> Second is they didn't tell you that the wolf worked for the brick company. <laughs> Makes a big difference. Yeah. No, it's very, very solid houses of straw and um, you can now actually get prefabricated panels. So you can build the walls of a two-story, three-bedroomed house in three or four days. It's very, very fast. And is there anything holding it together? We put hazel pins in the first bale yeah. so that the straw doesn't slide about when we're building. And from the fourth bale, we put them down through four bales. Inside. And from the sixth they go through the centre of the bale yeah, as so well. So, so like an internal skeleton? Sort of, but you don't have to. Mm. We do that really to help with self-building because a lot of these buildings are self-built. Yeah. You can build your own house for half the cost because it's very labour intensive, but if you do the labour yourself, you're saving all that money. Mm. And having built it with the bales, then it would be coated with? A lime plaster on the outside generally and a clay plaster on the inside. But you might want to put timber cladding on as well. Yes. We'll probably do timber cladding here because it's in a field that is overlooked by a lot of our neighbours and a white or a, a bright sort of colour would be a bit intrusive. So we're going to timber clad it so it looks like a shed yeah. rather than uh, and a building. Would, would lime plaster on the outside be completely weatherproof? Yeah, I mean, lime was used by the Romans and the, the Greeks. You know, you still see lime-plastered houses from mm. those times 2,000 years ago. Mm. We've got lime that is 12,000 years old and it's still all right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a very, very long, long-lasting material yeah. as long as you apply it properly and you maintain it and mm. make sure your garden doesn't grow up against it. So even here where you know we're subject to rain, I'm not going to say every day of the year but there's a lot of rain in this valley, mm. even here a line, external lime plaster would withstand all that. Oh yeah, what people I mean, don't realise is that these old stone houses used to be, a lot of them used to be lime plastered because it's a sacrificial coat yeah. that helps with dealing with the weather. Yeah. So you've got the structure yeah. that that also helps because it's got a lime mortar, but the but lime plasters on the outside yeah. also do. And if you if you lime render a stone gable wall, then it improves its weatherproof yeah. properties dramatically. Yeah. That's very interesting. Um, I just wanted to go back to basics really. Uh, so mortar, whether it's cement or lime, that's the stuff that sticks the bricks together. That's right. So it's the joints in your house. Yes. And then the plaster, whether that's gypsum or lime, is the thing that you would coat the brick or the stone with on the inside of your house. Or the outside, yes. Or the outside, yeah. When it's outside we generally call it render. It's been raining very heavily for oh, the yeah, last for two days, but prior to that, Pretty raining, not heavily, but raining. Wet. And wet. this straw house doesn't feel wet. No, really no. If it was just a bale in the field and it got wet, gravity would take the water all the way through it and it wouldn't be able to use it. But here we've got a vertical wall and the rain has lashed against it. And the rain penetrates the straw as far as the wind can push it, which is generally up to four inches. But as soon as it stops raining, then because of the breathability yeah. properties of the straw, that moisture just comes out into yeah. the surrounding atmosphere very quickly. Yeah. And it gets dry very quickly. Amazing. So you said it was a life-changing experience. I mean, what's so good about building houses with straw? 
Well, if you're at all interested in the environment, as I know your listeners are, it's about being in harmony with nature, first and foremost. It's about using the materials that people have always used for 12,000 years. Since the first people started building, they've used natural materials. And all of our houses that were built before 1920 are also built with natural materials. People don't realize that. Mm. It's only when cement started being used and then modern materials started to be Mm. developed more that we changed to a different system. You can imagine that as organic beings, physiologically we are in harmony with the natural materials and by those I mean things like um, straw and sheep's wool and hemp but also the things you might not think of as natural materials like stone and brick and clay. Here we are in Yorkshire and you can look around the countryside where we live a lot of the houses are two, three hundred, four hundred years old and they're all made with stone and with lime mortar. Those are natural materials. At this point in the conversation with Barbara, we take some time to discuss the challenges and difficulties uh, arising with the use of more modern building materials, starting with cement. You know, cement It was invented in 1826 in Wakefield, my hometown, which is why I feel like I need to tell people more about it. And what they were trying to do was create something that had the properties of lime but was easier to use. And it didn't really get used until the 1920s. And it started being used in construction from that time. So it's a very, very new material and we haven't got 10,000 years of looking at how it performs yet but we've got 150 years and we can see it's not doing very well. It's made from the same raw material as lime, which is limestone, and it's burnt in a kiln like lime is, so they both have the same environmental impact in that sense, that for every tonne of limestone you burn, you create a tonne of carbon dioxide. But the thing about cement is that they put other things into the kiln at the same time especially clays and sulfates and stuff like that, so that what they get at the end is a very homogenous grey or pink powder that can be sold around the world and it's always the same and you just add water. And it's something that you don't find in nature. When we started using cement, and I have to hold my hands up, I use cement too. We all thought it was a miracle material. We didn't know the consequences. So, you know, everybody has to learn and get aware about that stuff and then look at what's different, what we can do different. There are big differences in the sort of modern materials. The two main ones are that they are not flexible like the natural materials are and they're not breathable Mm. in the same way. And flexibility is, is a really important aspect of durability. So the houses you can see in this landscape, which are three, four hundred years old, can only exist because they were made with stone and with lime mortar. If they'd been made with cement mortar, they would have cracked by now because over that time period, the rigidity of the cement will have made it structurally unsound. Because there's always a bit of movement in the ground. There's always movement in the ground that you can't see, but you can see the effects of it over time. And the older houses with the lime mortar had a bit of give in them. Yeah, they do. They definitely do. You know, in Todmorden, there are houses that are leaning at about a 30 degree angle, but they're not structurally unsound because they're made with lime. Think of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Mm. That can only exist because it was built with lime. If it was built with cement, it would have cracked and fallen. So things like that, which are to do with flexibility, flexibility and durability. You can only have durability if you're using flexible materials. But the other health aspect is about the breathability of the materials. So natural fibres, and in that I count straw and sheep's wool and hemp and wood fibre and probably a few others that I haven't thought of just at the moment. They have this inherent quality which is to do with being natural, which is the way that they deal with moisture. When you harvest straw, for instance, it has a moisture content in it and you dry it so that it can be used for whatever straw is used for and it still has a moisture content in it. 
and you can use it for building houses with and it, it still has a moisture content in it. But it's able to absorb, all the natural fibres are able to absorb enormous amounts of moisture but it's not moisture like steam, it's not moisture like water. If you think about steam from a kettle we're not talking about that, we're talking about something that's maybe three million times smaller than what you can see there. So we're talking about water at the molecular yeah. level which can be bound into the molecules of the natural fibre so without it getting yeah. wet. The cellulose or whatever, do the water molecules bind to the molecules that are the constituents of the straw and that's the fibres? Right. So it wouldn't yeah. feel wet or feel damp? No. Yeah but it can absorb an enormous amount. So if you think about just an ordinary room that's four by four meters, if that had a relative humidity of 100%, it could absorb probably, I don't know, 100 times that without getting wet. So it's on a massive, massive scale. And the problem with a room getting wet is then you get condensation, that's the wetness, that's the actual water does become, water that we understand, liquid. Yes. And then from that you get mold. Yes. Right? So what we've tended to do is build houses with cement, with gypsum plasters and with vinyl paints. When there's moisture in the air we call that relative humidity. You can't see it but it's you can measure it. When that hits a cold surface like the external walls it condenses and it runs down because the walls are not what we call breathable. So the moisture can't go through the materials and be absorbed in the way of bound water into the fabric of the building. It just sits on the surface, it runs down and you generally get mould behind sofas and bookcases and things and round the edges of windows where there's not much ventilation to move it around. Whereas you don't get that in houses mm. that are made of natural materials with yeah. breathable walls and that includes the lime plasters and the clay plasters because they also absorb moisture in the same way mm. as the natural fibres do. You can touch a lime wall and it feels dry. Yes. Okay, so ideally you would want lime mortar, so the spaces between the bricks, the water can go in and out between mm -hmm. those, and then you would want a lime plaster and or a lime render, so you've then got that breathability all the way through. Exactly. We think of cement as a wet material because it, it's porous and it attracts water yeah. and it actually gets wet. Whereas lime in the mortar, it'll get wet where the water hits it, but then it absorbs water in this way of, of being dry. So in every episode, we usually have someone using a power tool. <laughs> Which one was that? Was that an angle grinder? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was the uh, circular saw chopping up oh, firewood. Right, okay. It, it, until you get head around it, it can be a bit tricky to understand about how can water be dry. But it's to do with the ability of these natural fibres and natural plasters to absorb, it's a scientific term, absorbing. Whereas cement is, is porous and it gets wet. If you put a cement block in four inches of water in a bath and leave it for 24 hours, when you come back again, the whole block will be wet. So it sort of wicks water into itself. If you put a bale of straw into a bowl of four inches of water it will also get wet where the water is physically in contact so it'll get wet to the level of the water and maybe a little bit beyond but the whole bale won't physically get wet and you can see that in barns when there's a drip a hole in the roof in a hay barn you can look and you can see where that water dripped through because you can see the channel of it all the way down through the bales but it hasn't spread out mm -hmm. into all of the bales mm -hmm. and you can just cut out that wet bit and use the rest of the bales. Mm. So it's, it's a different thing that's happening in those types of materials. So what would lime do then? What if you had lime water? Well it will get wet where the rain touches it Yeah. but it's able to absorb that moisture in a bound waterway. Okay. So it absorbs it into itself. So that moisture travels through the the lime and it holds it there. But as soon as the rain stops and you've got air movement outside, 
through capillary action in the lime, that water shoots out very, very quickly. What's that famous school on the south coast? that Rodine. Rodine. They did some really important experiments there because Rodine was all built with cement and it had um, a lime plaster on the outside and then it fell into disrepair during the wars and then they, re uh, or they redid it with cement, I can't remember which, but anyway, it was failing. It had a lot of damp inside mm. and with part of it, they didn't have enough money to renovate it and they just lime washed it. And just that very thin layer of lime wash made a dramatic difference to the amount of moisture that was inside the school. Okay, so it was binding the water and yeah. then it was rushing yes. that out of him when the sunshine appeared. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it, it holds the holds the moisture and then it lets it go again because basically what it's doing is balancing out the relative humidity between itself and the surrounding atmosphere. Yeah. And it never stops doing it, mm. that's the thing. Whereas cement will kind of get wet. It gets wet. But then it doesn't do this... It doesn't wicking. let go of it and the, the moisture actually transfers from that cement and this is why cavity walls are a big problem because in theory they should work but in practice they don't work because of, of workmanship. So the theory of cavity walls is pretty sound. You know, one wall takes the, takes the weather and the other one is your inside, inside skin but they have these metal ties and what happens is during the actual building builders, bricklayers, drop cement mortar onto the ties. They're not supposed to and they're supposed to clean it all out but they don't because they're on piecework, they're having to work fast to earn anything like a decent wage. So you get all these lumps of cement on the cross ties and in the bottom of the cavity. So over time the water that's come in through the joints makes contact with those bits of cement on the cross ties, it takes it across to the inside wall. And the th this is why it's taken such a long time to understand what's happening in new build properties, is because it, it doesn't happen overnight, it can take 10 years or more before you see the damp inside that is being caused by the materials, the inappropriate materials that were used to build the outside. And it's come across on the ties through to the inside skin. How about plaster on the inside? Well, when you talk about plaster, we have to know what the material is. So there's been this big movement towards using a gypsum plaster or even doing dot and dab, where you stick a plasterboard onto a irregular wall and then you've got a flat surface. These materials, when you've got some sort of damp coming through the wall anyway, can exacerbate that damp because they're not breathing so they don't they're not dealing with moisture in the way that the limes and the clays do okay but also you've got the moisture from inside from showers from breathing <laughs> cooking breathing cooking yeah dishwasher all that stuff so you've got moisture being generated and that's creating a lot of humidity and the plasters can't deal with it so the humidity gets high it hits the gypsum plaster walls and it runs down and it congregates at the bottom of the wall because gravity takes it down you also get it in places where it's cold so around the window because the window's colder than the rest of the wall when it touches a colder surface it condenses yeah and so you get a lot of moisture problems in those places mm. so we should maybe explain that you've got your water molecules in a mass of air and the warmer the air is the more water molecules these tiny tiny little water molecules mm. that we talked about the warmer the air the more of those molecules can the, be held the air can hold so then what happens when that air hits a cooler surface it can't hold as much water so the water becomes Water as we understand yes. it, drops of water or condensation. That's right. Yeah. Yes. When it hits a surface that is not breathable. When it hits a surface that cannot absorb yes. water molecules at the molecular level. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And, you know, what can you do? I mean, the very, very basic thing you can do if you've got a house that's built like that is paint a lime 
paint over everything. That will make a big difference. On the outside? On, in the in, on, on the, the inside. inside. On okay. top of? On top of. Where it was there already? Yeah, so oh. we've got here, this house has been renovated by people with cement, some of it, and I tried taking it off and it is so hard that it's actually taking the surface of the stone off. So in an area that we've, a small area that we've made into a toilet and shower, it's got cement on two walls. Instead of taking it off, we've lime washed it. We don't get any damp or mold in there. It makes a really big difference. Wow. This is good. This is good because we've talked about lots of problems with modern houses or older houses that have been renovated in ways that aren't sympathetic to dealing with moisture. So maybe we should also talk about, well, what do you do? Because <laughs> people are now going to be thinking, oh my God, what do yeah. I do? So it's a dilemma because a lot of people just don't have any money for renovation. And so I'm working with the Climate Challenge College in Todmorden at Todd College. And what we're trying to do is start at the grassroots level. We're not starting in academia and writing degrees. We're starting at the grassroots level. What can ordinary people do to make a difference to their houses, to the health of their houses? And particularly, you know, here in Todmorden, we don't have much money, but we have initiative and we have ability and we're very good at coming together as a community to do stuff. And so at the college, which is a, it's a community hub, what we're going towards is about how can we, as a community, do something that will make a difference, first of all, to our own homes, and then widen that out a little bit more to our community and to nationally, internationally. How can we spread that out, starting with where we are, and remembering that most of us are just little actors in our own lives. We can't do anything about what the government says or doesn't say. That's actually where we need to make the change. We need to make change on a really big scale very quickly. But in we the meantime, can't do that, yeah. but what we can do is think about our own homes. So if you've got a house that's got gypsum plaster on it and you've got very little money, one thing you can do is bit by bit when you're doing the decorating is just use a lime paint instead of uh, vinyl silk or something take the wallpaper off if you can if because a lot of our old houses do have lime plaster on them but it's hidden behind layers of paper or vinyl paint and you can't get the breathability back because it's got so many layers of paint on and it's quite arduous to take all that paint off. You can do it, but it's quite a job. That's the best thing to do. So the first thing is just paint with lime paint. Not a lime wash, I would say, because that doesn't stick so well to vinyl paints. But there's a new product from Germany, of course, because Germany has some really, really good ideas environmentally, called Farnovo, which is a powdered lime paint it's very high quality we're actually using it exclusively at Todd College it's a really big building we've got to renovate the whole building and we're using Farnovo as our paint to go over everything that's vinyl silk bit by bit we can't afford to do it all at once either but bit by bit when we've got a bit of spare time you know we go and paint another classroom so we've talked about how there's the difference between the lime materials and the more modern materials in terms of the moisture and the water management but is there a difference in terms of buildings with natural materials and heat um, I'm thinking about the loss of heat when it's really mm -hmm. cold or responding to you know high temperatures I mean here in the north we've got wide stone walls they're half a meter thick and they keep you cool when it's really really hot yeah outside and they also do help to keep you warm, but you have to put a lot of heat into them to heat the walls up. Stone buildings do that, cob buildings do that, earth buildings do that. What we're trying to get away from now is using fossil fuels to do that amount of heating to keep that building warm. So instead of that, we can do the same thickness of walls using straw. And they're part of what we call an airtight system. 
So you get breathable walls, we've talked about that, but you can also build airtight. So really what that means is that you want a building that only has air in, coming into it, drafts if you like, when you've introduced them yourself. So in a traditional building, you generally get drafts around windows and doors. And in modern buildings, you get them around windows and doors, but also around electrical sockets and anything that has punctured through the inside skin into the cavity. So that's where you get a lot of air coming in through the cavity because it's had holes drilled in the walls that have let that air come through. Some of it's to do with poor quality building and some of it's to do with that method of making cavities. So if we use, say, a monolithic wall of straw, then anything monolithic, it's really quite hard for air to pass through it. And in fact, it doesn't, especially when it's plastered or covered with wood fiberboard or timber cladding. And it's a very simple way of creating a heat barrier. And straw is very good at stopping heat moving through it. And that's why it's an insulant and lots of materials are also insulants, but straw's quite a heavy physical mass. It has mass, which means that it's not just an insulant, but it, it stores latent heat mm. as well. Mm. Like stone does, like masonry does, it doesn't store as much because it's not as heavy, but it does store a significant amount. And then when you've got a plaster on the inside and the outside as well, those are also thermal mass reservoirs and they are holding heat too. Mm. And so they act as barriers to heat and they also retain heat when you're putting it into the house. So when you've got a very airtight house, you're not losing heat through all those little gaps. Mm. You can have a party of four people and the room can get really warm just through your activity and your breathing because you're emitting heat. You can get warm in your office just by having the computer turned on. Mm. So if you had a new build house made of straw bales and natural materials for the plaster on the inside and the outside, it would be breathable in terms of moisture and it would be a heat store and it would be very well insulated. Mm. But so if we go back to the retrofitting of our stone built houses, is there anything that can be done there with natural materials to improve the yes, your heat management. Yes, absolutely, for yeah. definite. And most of our stone buildings, the way we're going to approach it would be to do internal insulation. So you've got the choice. You either insulate the wall from the inside or you insulate the wall from the outside. And to do it from the outside, it really changes what the house looks like and either the planners won't like it or your neighbours won't like it and it takes up some space. On the inside it's up to you and generally speaking you can put 75 to 100 mil of insulation on the inside of your old wall and it will do a very very good job at reducing heat loss. You'll get a really noticeable difference in your electricity bills from doing that or your gas bills from your central heating and there's a lot of talk about well how much does it reduce that we call it the u value which is a measure of insulation so the lower the u value the more insulating something is and the natural materials it's sort of finding the optimum you don't need to go to the absolute ultimate lowest u value to still make a very significant difference on your electricity bill so you might only be paying £10 a month instead of £50 a month mm. by putting 75ml of wood fibre board. Okay, so wood fibre is one of the materials you could use? Yes. Are there others? Yes, so round here I would say the two most important ones would be wood fibre board, which is really good if you've got quite a flat surface. And if you've got a stone wall that's quite lumpy, you're better off using a lime-hemp mixture an insulating plaster. The third one is a mixture of lime and cork. Even just adding small amounts of any of those three will make a difference that you'll notice. Ideally, you want to add 75 to 100 mil of them. Yeah, and you put it on as boards? Each, each method is a bit different. Yeah. 
So the wood fibre board has to be physically attached to the wall. It doesn't need lots of fixings, but you have to go through the wood fibre board into the masonry. You have a sort of long roll plug type thing. Uh, you drill a hole and then you hammer it in. So it's, it's a bit like a masonry nail and it's got a great big plastic washer on it. So you see these round plastic washers around your wall and then you plaster over it with a lime plaster, just a finished plaster, so maybe five millimetres of a lime plaster. You can do it DIY and we'll be teaching how to do that. Another method is to either buy ready mix or make your own insulating lime hemp plaster. It's a nice DIY option because you can apply it yourself and you don't have to get it really flat very quick. So you've got a bit of time to make it look the sort of flatness that you want if you're doing it yourself, if a plasterer's not doing it. Sounds a bit like icing the cake. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. It is. So people say, oh, I can't do building. I've yeah. never done building. And I say, well, I bet you've followed a recipe and made a cake because that's all these plasters are. It's like following a recipe, but on a big scale and icing vertically instead of horizontally. <laughs> if you've got a house that has some internal walls with vinyl paint on uh, or paper, is this insulation still an option? Well, you're sort of trying to think about what can I afford, what can I do myself, and what's the optimum. And so what we're trying to encourage people to think about is the first thing you can do, the most minimal thing that will make a difference, and that's just painting everything with a good quality lime paint. Mm -hmm. Second thing is take off the modern plaster and replace it with an insulating plaster with either cork or lime hemp mm -hmm. or put wood fibre board on instead with a lime plaster and maybe just do that in one room. You don't have to do it on all the walls, it's only the external walls where you need to insulate. So if you've got a wall between a sitting room and a kitchen well, that forget about matter. that. Yeah. No point in insulating that's that. That's right. It's yeah. the wall that's got the outside yes. on the other side of mm -hmm. it. Yeah, so that's front and back. Sometimes it's the gable ends as well. But to be honest, the thing that makes the biggest difference is insulating your roof. Insulate the loft or the roof. A lot of our houses have attics rather than an empty loft space. What natural materials could you use in the roof? Well. We've got a bit of a problem around here because a lot of our old roofs have purlins, those really big timbers that go from one wall to the next in the gable. And then they've got quite shallow, quite small rafters on top. So generally those rafters are only 75mm deep. That's not enough insulation. So ideally, take the plaster off. So this would be the optimum. Take the plaster off inside fill that gap between the rafters with something squashy but natural so that could be sheep's wool it could be hemp because you can get hemp in those quilty finishes as well it could be wood fiber because that comes in that form as well you could blow it in so it could be something like warm cell which is recycled newspaper or cellulose we're starting to get straw blow in straw as well but I think one of the optimums is sheep's wool because sheep's wool deals very, very well with moisture. So if it gets wet, it actually is more insulating, which is why sailors wear the traditional Guernsey jumpers, Aran jumpers. It's because they actually keep you warmer when it's wet. That's amazing. It's, it's got a really amazing quality. Mm. And if you can't afford to buy sheep's wool, then you can collect raw sheep's wool you can collect old woolen jumpers from the second-hand shop. You know, all of, there's lots of things you can do that aren't necessarily paying for the product. The National Trust used to sell its own sheep's wool just in that raw state. I've used an awful lot of it in, in many of my designs and it's, it's really good. And two things about using raw sheep's wool is use borax crystals because of the moths. Yes. And put it in spaces which are enclosed so that the moths have a much more difficult time to get in there. Yes. So this is like the optimum, is to take the plaster off, insulate between the rafters, and then put wood fibre board on, probably 60 to 100 mil of wood fibre board. So you're getting what's between the rafters and you've got the wood fibre board. Yeah. 
and then plaster over everything yeah. and yeah. really make sure that you've got everything right to the edges and that if you haven't you use some of the squashy stuff to fill the gaps so that you're trying to make as airtight but breathable ceiling mm. as you can mm. so you've got a ceiling then that's airtight and it's breathable and it's made of natural mm. materials and it's as thick as you can mm. afford to make it and then finish it all off with a lime mm. okay another aspect of what you're saying really is in terms of sustainability of natural materials there's lots of reasons why they're better in terms of functionality with the building but there are also ways in which they're cheaper they're available locally and they are biodegradable unlike many products that are used in modern housing for insulation or whatever all these materials in the end can decay and return to the earth can't yeah they? the wool the wood fiber the lime plaster etc mm -hmm. yeah and that's that's really important it's really important that we keep things as simple and as close to nature as we can we process them very very minimally and then when we don't need them anymore we reuse them as much as we can or we use them for compost you know yeah. sheep's wool is great for putting on the garden yeah. over the plants in winter mm. for instance here in the valley we've experienced much more intense wet weather recently it's getting hotter in the summers as well are these methods good for dealing with this type of changing climate mm -hmm. so stone houses are very resilient in extra heat when it's very hot so as long as you keep the windows closed on the sunny side so that you're not getting the heated air into the house they are some of the best ways of keeping the heat out is the thick stone walls mm. because it, it absorbs the heat we call it decrement delay is the amount of time it takes from being very hot on one side to pass through into the other side so straw has a decrement delay of six to eight hours so by the time the heat from the day has potentially passed through into the inside it's cooled down because it's evening and stone is the same you really can't imagine how hot it would have to be for a stone house to get warm on the inside from the heat outside it gets warm inside because the heat's coming in through the windows or the open doors it doesn't get warm because it's coming through the actual wall itself so we've got protection already with our natural stone houses around here the problem lies for those people who are living in houses that were built in the 60s and 70s they just get unbearably hot inside because they haven't got enough of a heat barrier within what they're made from in order to protect you there's no way of buffering that outside heat it just goes straight through not into as the inside there is a way which is to insulate them on the outside with something like straw Ooh. and that's what we're going to do with the todd college because straw is now you're doing that to the actual college we're going to do that to the actual college okay we're going to put straw panels because we've got prefabricated straw panels now available to us and we can put those on the outside fasten them to the fabric of the building and then wood fiber and lime plaster and that will stop the heat coming through the walls and it will also stop the heat coming through the walls from inside and being lost so I was going to say it's, it's it is obvious but the same factors which make these buildings well insulated mm. also protects from Pro excessive heat yes yeah it's the same it, it's hot, the same in, process in hot weather yeah and really what you're thinking about is can I put it on the outside mm. can I put it on the inside and how better. much of it can yeah. I afford so maybe we should say something about this college and how you got it back wasn't it going to be demolished yeah or? it was going to be bulldozed mm. and I thought well that's just that's just outrageous because I knew it as a good building loads and loads of people in Todd have actually studied in that building so I thought the School of Natural Building can do something with this it's got workshop space and classrooms and everything it's fantastic and at the same time Nick Green from Incredible Farm was thinking we can't let that building go we heard about each other we got together and then we got some community activists as well 
and we set up this big campaign to save the college and the council had already made the decision to sell it to Aldi who wanted to have a much bigger store and a car park there right in front of the old folks home. There wasn't a community group at that time in Todd who could have taken on this building. We came from nowhere because we saw the value of this building. We got them to overturn that decision and to hand it over to us as an asset transfer. So it took us six years to get to that point and we've been running it now as a community benefit society for just over two years and we are being successful. There's lots of interesting things that have started <laughs> happening at the college. Do you want to talk a little mm. bit about what's going on at I'd the college because it's really exciting for a small town like Todmorden to have this resource. Mm. You know Todmorden's always punched above its weight though. I mean look at Incredible Edible that's gone international. Yeah. We want to go international as well with what we're doing but we're very very proud of what's been achieved with Todd College and it was our vision right from the beginning to be sustainable to address the climate crisis that we're in. So the first thing we did was we got major funding off the National Lottery and we set up what we call the Climate Challenge College. And we developed a taster course in four different subject areas. So the, the politics of climate change, you know, how do you know what's greenwash and what isn't? How do you know what's gonna help and what's gonna hinder? And land and farming and permaculture and resilient farming all that sort of stuff and animal husbandry and how to do things on a small scale and on a bigger scale and renewable energy how to do stuff for yourself and how to get involved in the bigger industry and get jobs in the bigger industry and natural building which of course is the bit that I take care of all about the different materials that we can use and why we should use them how we can use them where we can get them from the DIY versions and the product versions. So we focused that course on young people. <clears throat> we didn't exclusively get young people, but we mostly did. And uh, we've developed it over the last couple of years and it's been really successful. And we're now running short courses in things like dry stone walling and lime plastering and pointing and hedge laying and coppicing and uh, mushroom growing and stuff like that. So our focus is to try and give the skills that are needed for existing in a green economy. Stuff that you can do either for yourself on a DIY level or that you can start earning a bit of money at to be, you know, to earn some subsistence. And then because we've got this major resource which has a lot of workshops and classrooms, we are encouraging people to use the college for things that fit our mission. So one of the big successes is the makery. They do various different uh, sessions on repairing your bikes, repairing your electronics, repairing your furniture, upcycling fabrics into different fashions and clothing, just mending stuff per se, everything, and it's very popular. And we have men in sheds and women in workshops as well. We've also got a tool library, which is open every Saturday. So you can come and borrow pretty much anything you might need for fixing your house or your garden and then bring it back again. And uh, everything is, is on a low cost scale. So we have community rates and we have commercial rates. And the community rates, I think, are very fair. We've got the climate club that goes on for families and family climate clubs. So we're, we're trying to give people a chance to find out a bit more about what is this climate crisis and what can I do about it? Because there's a lot of misunderstanding and there's a lot of fear about it. And we're trying to just give practical solutions, things that you can do that will make a difference to your own life and that you can, you know, how you can get involved on bigger and bigger scales if you want to. And I think for the community to have this resource, it offers all these opportunities. You know, you don't have to throw your digital radio away anymore. You think, oh, maybe someone knows how to fix digital radios. Mm -hmm. so and even got... if they don't, then they can take the parts and mm, fix somebody yeah. else's with it. Yeah, so you've got this resource but I think it's also that it's providing maybe this sense of like well there's something I can do mm. 
challenges um, hopelessness and it giving up. Yeah, yeah, it provides something psychologically positive. Also, we'll be setting up the retrofit hub, so it'll be a one-stop shop for finding out how can you do something to your own home or encourage your landlord to do something so that it will improve it and make it more resilient as the climate change takes hold. Mm. But and also, find other people to work with and help you on a DIY basis. It also means that there's better relationships between people, better sense of having the skills to be equipped to deal with unforeseen things or maybe the next flood emergency. Todd's always had a strong sense of community, as you've said, but I mean, like, even more than before. It's like explicitly mobilising people's sense of being able to do things for themselves and respond mm. to um, more drastic things which might happen in the future. Mm. Yes, and part of what we're doing is becoming a flood resilient hub. So we've got some of the town deal money for Todmorden. We've got 1.7 million, which we're spending on sustainability, on insulating the fabric of the building, getting the ventilation up to speed, reducing our dependence on fossil fuels. Mm. The college has got a very old 1960s cookery room which is no longer fit for purpose but we're going to refurbish that so that we can be a community kitchen in times of crisis whether that be flood or whatever might afflict our community but also so that it's a place where market stall holders can come and do their cooking in a hygienic environment where people can book it out to teach classes to do all sorts of things where when you've got a glut of black currants you can come and make your jam so all sorts of stuff like that can go on in the community kitchen once we've got that i mean we've had transition towns haven't we but have you started a, a new kind of movement here do you think or <laughs> well or to be honest i think it was incredible edible that started the movement mm. so incredible edible is our version of transition towns yeah it's sort of a more hands-on grassroots version and it's about a can-do attitude you know something needs doing we'll do it if we can't do it we'll find someone who can if somebody doesn't like it we'll go and ask them forgiveness but we'll get it done it's that attitude you know we'll just get on and find a way to do the things that need to be done that will benefit our community and can be an example to others and then they can start doing it. We don't need to go and do it for other towns. They can come and see what we're doing and then they can do it themselves and it'll have their own little version of it, which is what Incredible Edible did. You know, yes, they've been out around the world talking about it and inspiring people, but actually it's local people doing local stuff that is making the difference. So that's been a really wide-ranging and interesting discussion. We've learnt all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, thanks very much for spending the time to come and do this, oh, Barbara. Oh, it's a pleasure. You can tell I'm a fanatic, aren't you? <laughs> I just love it. And if people wanted to find out more about anything that we've talked about this morning, there's resources online, I yeah. guess. There's the School of Natural Building website. You can find Todd College and the Climate Challenge College online. And, uh, you know, you can email us and if we're not too busy building straw houses, we'll get back to you. <laughs> Great. Thank, thank you, you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you.